2: It is Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. This is The Guy Benson Show. Welcome, one and all, to the Tony Snow Radio Studio. Thank you for listening every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's the live program. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com, a one stop shop for all things related to the show, including the podcast. If you ever miss any of the segments live, they are all there on demand for free every day. GuyBensonShow.com on that podcast. We'll get to our first guest here in a moment. Later on today's show, Josh Holmes is going to be here. Bill Hemmer is going to be here. And Leslie Marshall will also join us. So we are stacked up today on this election day. Let's bring you first a Fox News alert. As we do every day with stats. Cases of coronavirus confirmed in the United States, all in 46 million. The death toll in this country with or from coronavirus 746,688. The Dow is up 146 points at this hour, trading just over 36,000. And now, another Fox News alert. Well, you know what that music means. It's election time here at Fox. And in Virginia, New Jersey, and some other jurisdictions around the country, it is election day. In Virginia, just across the river from our studios, we are, what, T-minus under four hours away from the polls closing and the results starting to come in. Early results out of Virginia will be from the early vote tabulated first, which are expected to tilt Democratic. Then the question becomes, do the Republicans and the independent turnout, is that enough to overcome what the Democrats say and believe that they have, which is a pretty significant early vote edge. That is the whole math. That is the whole ball game today in the highly watched state, or we should say Commonwealth of Virginia. And joining me here in studio to help break this down and talk about all things politics is Brett Bayer, chief political anchor for Fox News, anchor of Special Report, every weeknight at 6 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Host of the hit podcast Brett Bear's All Star Panel, and he's also author of the best-selling book To Rescue the Republic. Last time Brett, we had you on; you were at number two on the bestseller list, and then you went up to number one. So, congratulations! That's huge.
3: Thank you. And clearly, it was you because this is fair, fresh, and fun. Yeah, you know, and I, um, this must be this must be what happened.
2: I didn't want to take full credit, but I'm glad <laughs> that you see the truth, Brett. <laughs> And I also didn't want to take full credit the other day for the Atlanta Braves being in the World Series. I'm not a Braves fan, but I did throw the first pitch out at a Braves game this year. They were kind of on a a snide at that point. (laughs) And look what's happened to them now. So I'm I'm not saying that it's all just a Midas touch here at the Guy Benson Show, but I'm implying it very heavily. (laughs) All right, Brett. The Virginia race is of great interest, I think, to a lot of people because— this is a state that Democrats have really controlled pretty handily for the last decade plus. Republicans have not won statewide in Virginia in 12 years. Last year, just you know, one year ago almost to the day, it was a Biden easy 10-point victory. And the polls and all the indications are pointing to a very close race today with Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, right there, slightly ahead in the polls, but basically a toss-up. Uh, what are you looking for tonight? What are you hearing?
3: So I'm looking for uh, where the numbers are coming from, specifically uh, how big McAuliffe does, how well he does in northern Virginia, if Youngkin can chip away at some of those numbers. Remember, Joe Biden beat Donald Trump by 520,000 votes in northern Virginia, Uh, went on to a 10 point lead, as you mentioned. Traditionally, Republicans have had a hard time in those areas, but if you look where Youngkin was campaigning towards the end, he was campaigning there. Loudoun County last night, uh, he's been to Fairfax, he's been to a number of places that traditionally Republicans don't go Alexandria to with their clothes. They don't go yeah. to clothes there. Right. Um, so, I think that there is some confidence in the Yunkin team, but I think Politico put it well, that it is momentum versus math. In other words, it was the momentum enough to counter the early vote for McAuliffe, uh, which the McAuliffe people said that they were confident about going into today. So, it really is turnout, and you know, you, then you look at other factors, you look at the weather across the Commonwealth, and... Where, you know, are people turning out? Anecdotally, you're you're hearing long lines in places that are good for Republicans. Uh, but he needs at least 52 to 55 percent of the vote today to win Youngkin. in a tight race. Youngkin yep. does.
2: Yep. And it's funny. We were chatting off the air. The McAuliffe people have sort of looked at the electorate and they've got their models about the early vote, what they think they've done. And it's not really aligning with what I heard The young people believe the early vote looks like and so much of the projections and the models, it only gets you to a certain point. And then the actual results start dropping at seven and all of this spin. I always think that Election Day itself is so excruciating because everyone wants to know stuff and you really don't know anything. And I remember hearing uh, in January in those two runoff races for the Senate, good things on the ground for Republicans oh, we're liking what we're seeing here, we're liking what we're seeing there, the Demo- oh, the Democrats aren't liking this, and then we all remember what happened in both of those races. So it's. I think a lot of it is just sort of people putting out rumors and wish-casting and all sorts of stuff sure. uh, until 7 p.m. Eastern time here. Yeah.
3: You'll get an early little look with our voter analysis, which is pretty has been really, really accurate, and we've been able to make calls based on the raw vote total added to our voter analysis, which is a massive poll before it uh, goes a few days before and the day of uh, and the raw vote total. And you put that together start to align them and, and see. then our you know, nerds in the uh, in the uh, decision desk uh, start to look at where that vote is and what if it lines up. And that's how they make uh, the decision. And we'll have that tonight.
2: Brett, you mentioned the Loudoun rally last night for Glenn Young in his final rally. I was there. I just went down to just observe and, and put my two eyes on what was happening on the ground in really a fascinating county. Education, the number one issue, the biggest reaction from the crowd last night. I would say 1,500, 2,000 people-ish in Loudoun. Uh, the visceral reaction from the crowd was most noticeable on the issue of immigration. And I want to play for you. I took some of this video. I posted immigration on or education? Education, my mistake, education. He didn't mention immigration at all, maybe briefly in passing, education. And he began with a two-part point on curricula and what parents are so up in arms about. And here's the first way that he sort of teed up the second part. Let's listen on education. Glenn Youngkin, last night, Loudoun County, cut two.
4: But friends, we know it all starts with curriculum. And so let me be really clear. We will teach accelerated math. We will award advanced diplomas. We will teach all history, the good and the bad. America is the greatest country on the planet. We know it. We have an amazing history, but we also have some dark and abhorrent chapters. We must teach them all. We can't know where we're going unless we know where we have come from.
2: So to me, Brett, it's almost like a pre of what you hear progressives say, which is all the critical race theory, the curriculum stuff. It's just... Uh, Buzzwords that Republicans are using to try to make excuses not to teach things like slavery. Youngkin saying that's not the case at all. We have to teach the good, bad, and ugly. But, and here comes the pivot, cut three.
4: But let me be clear what we won't do, what we won't do is teach our children to view everything through a lens of race, where we divide them into buckets and one group's an oppressor and one other group's a victim and we pit them against each other and we steal their dreams. We will not be a commonwealth of dream stealers. We will be a commonwealth of dream enablers and builders. And we know it's not right. We're all created equal. And we're trying so hard to live up to those immortal words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who implored us to be better than we are. To judge one another based on the content of our character and not the color of our skin. And so let me be clear. Let me be clear. On day one, we will not have political agendas in the classroom, and
2: I will ban critical race theory. All right, so biggest cheer of the night right there in Loudoun where education has been front and center. And you juxtapose that messaging with McAuliffe's closing rally yesterday in Fairfax County where he had with him at the rally, in fact speaking at the rally, Randy Weingarten, the union boss for teachers' union's. I mean, it is a striking closing argument juxtaposition on the last day of the campaign.
3: Very much so. And I think that just that realization that the that Randy Ward Weingarten, um, who is seen at the center of a lot of these controversies, is the closer for Terry McAuliffe, suggests that McAuliffe is acknowledging, at least in part, that he's lost this argument uh, in the polls and with the hearts and minds of these parents who have problems with the schools and that he has to fire up the union, uh, to come out the, base. the union base. And by doing that, you're, you're losing some of that independent vote, but you're trying to fire up the deep blue vote, uh, with Randy Weidgarten. Otherwise, why would you do that? It seems tone deaf in this environment.
2: Brett, just briefly, we are watching and monitoring right now. President Biden is speaking in Scotland. He may take some questions. We will keep an eye on that out of the corner of our eye. Brett Bayer is in studio with us here on The Guy Benson Show. Shifting from Virginia back across the Potomac here to Washington, D.C. An interesting day yesterday with Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, saying what he said. uh, Sort of a couple shots across the bow of the progressives. The progressives had already announced something of a climb down. And there are yet more noises that there might be a deal that might move to a vote at some point this week. Hopeful sounds from the leadership, but we've been hearing those sounds now week after week. What do you make of that and Manchin's play yesterday?
3: I think he was sick of running into reporters in the hallway and uh, wanted to get everybody in one room and say, here's the deal. <laughs>
1: um,
3: I do think that he's been saying something similar for a long time, which is, I need to know the... The impact on this reconciliation bill on the U.S. economy and what it means for the deficit and debt and what it means long term. You know, he rightfully says and characterizes it that the reason they get down to one point seven five is because they cut these programs to two or three years. So, you know, no Congress is coming in afterwards saying, you know what, we're ending this after two years. It's really great for everybody, but it's over. And so in reality, the, if you want to price it out, it goes the full 7, 8, 10 years, mm-hmm. and suddenly you're looking at a different price tag. So he is not the only moderate up there that's concerned about actually seeing the text, and it's just not moderates in the Senate. And a CBO There's, score, too. And the CBO score. And so I don't think you're going to get a vote this week on – Unless the progressives say, fine, do the infrastructure vote and we'll do the other one later, you're not going to get both votes this week.
2: But it sounds like maybe they're more open to finally voting on infrastructure. I don't know exactly what has changed. If anything, it feels like the outcome of Build Back Better has gotten more hazy. And yet maybe there's just a sense of... Exhaustion among the progressives saying we might actually come up with nothing here, so we better do something. Yeah,
3: and they're getting blamed. Yeah. And they're getting blamed and they have to say it wasn't us. Uh, we didn't do it. Uh, we're, we're for everything. And um, I think if they do that, it'll be a major walk back. And I doubt that the other bill will move forward the same in the same way i mean it'll get restructured and it'll take a long time right dozens
2: of times maybe yeah Yeah. well brett bayer is the chief political anchor here at fox he'll be co-anchoring special coverage tonight on the election of course special report 6 p.m eastern you can buy his book new york times number one bestseller to rescue the republic appreciate it Brett. great to see you thanks for swinging by
3: all right guy thanks it's brett
2: bayer here in studio on the guy benson show we're just getting started don't go anywhere stay tuned
1: the guy benson show Fox Nation presents Podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak.
5: I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts.
2: I'm Guy Benson, back here on The Guy Benson Show. we bringing you another Fox News alert early here in the program. We mentioned that President Biden was giving some remarks in glasgow scotland before he leaves this climate change summit and he doesn't take questions very often these days from reporters but he is taking them now let's go live to scotland and listen to some of this q a between the president and the press corps
6: more oil um and we'll see what happens on that score uh sooner than later um Number three, I think if you take a look at what we're talking about, you look to this coming Thanksgiving. You know, uh, we're in a situation where we find that uh, um, we are in a very different circumstance. Last Thanksgiving, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, as I said, this year we're working on a supply chain issue. But last Thanksgiving, I sat down with my wife, my daughter, and my son-in-law. Uh, this Thanksgiving, we're all in a very different circumstance. Things are a hell of a lot better, and the wages have gone up higher faster than inflation, uh, and we have generated real economic growth. It doesn't mean these dislocations aren't real. They do affect people's lives. For example, one of the reasons why I decided to talk about the need to deal with uh, um, uh, uh, the operation and the gouging that occurs in some of the pricing of beef and chicken and other things is that uh, that's why I think we're, I indic- that's why I indicated you we're going to look at whether or not uh, there's a violation of, of antitrust laws and what they're doing. So there's a lot to look at. But the bottom line is that I think uh, that uh, and anyone who would prefer as bad as things are in terms of the prices helping her- her- Hurting families now, trade this Thanksgiving for last Thanksgiving. Um, Jen Epstein, Wall Street Journal. I mean, excuse me. I beg your pardon. Bloomberg. I hope I, 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 I got it. I got it. Thank you. Especially since my granddaughter works for you guys uh, in a different circumstance. So I. I'm in trouble.
7: Well, I'm going to ask a a very Bloomberg question to begin, which is, um, have you decided who you will nominate to chair the Federal Reserve Board? And if not, can you speak a little bit about what you're thinking about as you consider your choice for Fed chair and the other seats that are open? Um, This is the latest that that a president has gone without nominating somebody uh, the year before a a nominee needs to be uh, selected. And are you concerned... Um, about potentially having a short timeline, especially if you're not going to re-nominate Jay Powell?
6: No, no, and no. Uh, no, I'm not going to discuss it with you because that's in train now. We'll be making those announcements fairly quickly. Uh, it's been in train for some time, number one. Uh, number two, um, uh, I also uh, would indicate that uh, um, I think we're going to have plenty of time to make sure all the major nominees are able to be cleared in time uh, that where their terms would expire. And number three, I've uh, given a lot of thought to it. And I've been meeting with my economic advisors on what the best choices are. We've got a lot of good choices, but I'm not going to speculate. All right, on that. so
2: you can hear there the president taking some questions from the press corps, a bit halting at times. He's preparing to depart from Scotland after this climate change summit. When we come back, Josh Holmes will join us back to the domestic front, Virginia, politics, and more with Josh. That's straight ahead
4: on The Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.
1: Guy Benson.
2: As we continue here on the Guy Benson Show, I saw this today from Politico. found it interesting, especially to compare and contrast last night's big, really significant Yunkin rallies in Virginia Beach. He had more than 2,000 people there. That's a city where McAuliffe actually canceled a last-minute rally. Virginia Beach and up in Loudoun County that's the one that I attended what was Terry McAuliffe up to well he was stumping with Randy Weingarten the woman who is arguably more responsible for more harm inflicted on more children in the United States than anyone else any single person in the year 2020 and early 2021 just a double triple down on the base strategy for McAuliffe and Brett said Brett Baier earlier said that could be very tone deaf in the scheme of things, or if they feel like they just can turn out their base and that's enough in Virginia, a D plus 10 state, then, you know, that would explain it. But at one of his rallies in Fairfax last night, Terry McAuliffe said this. Guess how Glenn Youngkin is finishing his campaign. He's doing an event with Donald Trump here in Virginia. That's the quote. Politico writes, that was a lie. Trump wasn't in Virginia. He never campaigned with Yunkin. He did make the case for the GOP candidate, a fantastic guy, during a brief tele-rally, like a a phone call. That was not a Yunkin thing. Meanwhile, writes Politico, 30 miles away at the Loudoun County Fairgrounds, a crowd several times the size of McAuliffe's was waiting for Yunkin to take the stage. You got a hint of why McAuliffe was desperate to manufacture the fake Trump event because of his, quote, modest and listless crowds that he himself, McAuliffe, was drawing. Does that mean anything? Joining us now is Josh Holmes, founding partner of Cavalry LLC, co-host of the Ruthless podcast, longtime Republican operative and aide. Josh, great to have you back.
8: Hey, guy. What's going on, man?
2: I just have to ask you, since I just quoted Politico, there was another piece in Politico just this week where – uh, one of the Lib journos decided to listen to your podcast, Ruthless, and write a review, and he did not like it, and it seemed like the Minions did not care for his views.
8: <laughs> the disrespect, Guy, the disrespect. Yeah, no, they uh, they took great issue with the program, and that's okay. It's not meant for them, right? I think I probably would have had heart failure and and thought about quitting altogether, if the dude who wrote that story found anything redeemable about what we say on the variety (laughs) program.
2: Okay. So almost like a strange endorsement in some ways, the negative
8: review. (laughs) It is. It's kind of a backwards endorsement in some ways, but you know, like you probably run into this all the time guy, but when your critics are out there, you just wish that they could be smart about it. Right. I don't mind them hating us. I just wish that they'd do their homework a little bit. Right. And it's like, Guy Pence 2,000 words about us. I don't even know if you really listened to anything other than an interview with Vice President Mike Pence, but he had a lot to say about all of the things that motivate us.
2: Yeah, sometimes you kind of root for better opponents, and sometimes you just have to go to war with the opponents that you have in politics, Josh. Uh, and that's what you guys do at Ruthless is what we do here at the Guy Benson Show. So I was just quoting another uh, playbook, D.C., report from Politico about how last night Terry McAuliffe on the campaign trail with uh, Randy Weingarten there by his side was inventing a made-up Yunkin trump rally, so just asserting that it was happening, and that was how Glenn Yunkin was closing his campaign. Politico was like, nope, that is definitely not a thing. And you look at the enthusiasm and certainly the intensity gap that exists in this race. I think that is undeniable. What is debatable is whether ultimately – It will matter to the final outcome. The polls show an extremely tight race. So take this ball wherever you want to take it, Josh, in terms of what you're seeing on the ground, what you're hearing. You're a very plugged in guy. What are your expectations here tonight? And what do you make of uh, really a surging Yunkin toward the end and kind of a bit of a spiraling lackluster McAuliffe?
8: Yeah, I mean, look, the first thing we all have to remember is that Virginia definitely is a blue state. I mean, if you listen to Democrats, they're trying to pretend as though it's like the ultimate swing state. But but recall that Joe Biden won by double digits one year right. ago, almost to the date, right? So it, it, it's pretty blue at this point, And it certainly has been blue for over the last decade. The fact that we are talking about this, you know, just one year removed from a Democratic sweep in Virginia, I think says a lot about the direction of the country and you know, its proximity to what's happening in Washington, D.C., and, and ultimately the trouble that that is, has brought upon the McAuliffe campaign. Compounding all of that is this national issue that really sort of started in Virginia, which is the issue of critical race theory and, and more broadly, the issue of classrooms and what's being taught to children and whether or not parents should have any say in the education of their children, which it seems like. Uh, And and either, but also I would
2: add also just closed classrooms for well over a year in Virginia, right? That was also very much in this mix.
8: Totally in the mix. And and honestly, that is what gave rise to parents, you know, sometimes for the first time getting a firsthand look at the curriculum that their children are being taught in some of these schools. And so obviously there has been uh, now for many months an outcry to school boards and, and school districts across the Commonwealth of Virginia to, to take issue with some of that. Now, there's two ways of handling that, right? There's there's a sincere way of handling it, which Glenn Youngkin has done, talks talks a lot about it from the very beginning, knew that this was a motivating issue. And then there's the Terry McAuliffe way, which is hilarious in retrospect, and, and, and I think probably one of the fatal flaws of his campaign if he ends up losing, which is to dismiss it altogether, to, to pretend that mm-hmm. this is a, you know, a quote-up, quote, unquote, Made up controversy and that there is no parents who are actually concerned about this, that things like critical race theory do not exist. Well, that should come as news to the people in Loudoun County who have been seeing that curriculum for the better part of a year now, right? So uh, it it is a, a horrible mistake that he made down the stretch of this campaign. And it's the kind of issue that can eat into a center left of the electorate on an issue that they care about. Uh, and make them think twice about where they're aligned from a partisan standpoint. You know, you recall like 10 years ago, Guy, that issue with health care, right? And and 10 years later, it really seems to be education. I, I think if even if Youngkin loses by a nose tonight, I think the message would be, boy, oh boy, is there a dramatic shift in those suburban electorate um, that are, are seeing things like what's happening in our schools and reacting to it.
2: And part of that reaction and that shift that you're discussing here was encapsulated in this soundbite that I want to play. PBS did an interview with an independent voter, a mother. She's got a daughter in high school and she has voted both ways. Right. She's she's not a Republican or a Democrat. She swings. She's one of those swing voters, suburban mom. And here is what she told PBS in cut seven.
5: You're a swing voter. Yeah, I'm a swing voter. I'm the person that politicians sort of love and hate. Dana Jackson, whose daughter is now in high school, is an independent. She's voting Republican this year, and she sees others like her. I
7: have some friends that are Democrats who have never voted red in their life. And this time they voted
0: every red box they could find.
2: Friends who are Democrats who've never voted red in their life. Now, this time, they voted every red box, voting for every Republicans they could find on the ballot. Now, that's one person and potentially one anecdote, but... When you broaden it out and look at the data and you look at the polling, that woman that you just heard from there, Josh, in the PBS report, she speaks for an awful lot of folks in the suburbs, in parts of Virginia that have turned hard against Republicans in recent years that might be coming back into the fold. And, you know, Yunkin just needs to eat in to some of those margins – you know, significantly. He needs to eat into those margins in northern Virginia and then run up the score down south. That's how you get to a Yunkin win tonight, potentially. And it seems at least like on paper at the moment, his campaign has done what they need to do to either make that happen or put their voters in a position to make that happen.
8: Yeah, no question about it. And i just tell you anecdotally, again, one story that's really funny. I, I was Saturday, my wife and I like the kids to go early vote at our local polling location. And there was, you know, there was a fairly decent line there at the time, which is sort of unusual. But we live in one of those districts where it's like, you know, 70, 30 Democrats. So it's not necessarily a good thing. So I'm standing in line. I'm trying to measure this thing up and I'm looking around at all the various people. And there is an inordinate number of people doing the exact same thing that we were like. Right? They, they had kids in their arms they're, and they're all seeming to stare at their shoes, trying to not to make eye contact with their neighbors, and I was like, I, I see what's going on here, right? I mean, these are people who are going to go pull the lever and not talk to a single neighbor about what they've just done <laughs> for fear of being uh, uh, criticized at the local cocktail party. But but I think there is, a, a, there is something to that, right? I, I think there is a huge number of high-educated, high-income uh, uh, families across northern Virginia that have voted extremely democratic over the last two or four cycles that are looking around at basic things like education uh, and and the economy. I mean, let's be honest, uh, the inflation being what it is, the supply chain issues being what it is, and the tone deafness of the National Democrats and trying to do more of what's already put us in a really bad place, I think a lot of us folks been thinking twice about what it is that they voted for over the last few years. I, I think Yunkin uh, has done a very good job of capitalizing
3: on that.
2: Yeah, and the one thing that has been sort of confounding to me is you look at polling in Virginia. We can move on from Virginia here in a second, Josh, but in recent cycles, you know, going back to 2014, 2013, 2017, there have been some pretty significant polling misses In Virginia, where Democrats like Terry McAuliffe, for example, he was up six, six and a half in the polls in 2013, and then he only ended up winning by two and a half points. So that was, you know, roughly a four or three and a half point miss uh, in a way that was unhelpful to Democrats, right? The polls had overestimated Democratic support. Same thing with the uh, Warner Senate race where he was up huge, like double digits, and then he barely squeaked past Ed Gillespie by less than one point. That was in a Republican year. On the flip side, you had in 2017, right after President Trump was in office, you know, a huge turnout by Democrats, and Ralph Northam was up three or four points. He ended up winning by eight, eight plus. And so at the moment, the polling average shows that Glenn Youngkin is – narrowly ahead by, you know, one or two points. I've heard that their internals have it around three, maybe four, but you're not exactly sure what the electorate's going to look like. You know, your gut might tell you that it's a more Republican-leaning year and people, you know, you look at the national environment, President Biden, the economy, all this other stuff, plus the local issues that you mentioned, that would, you would think, potentially bode well for Yunkin, but we're not really going to know until we know, and I know that's just a few hours from now, but these last few hours are often you know, the, the toughest part, you know, the, to paraphrase Tom Petty. The waiting is the hardest part, and we're in that, you know, that waiting zone at the moment.
8: Yeah, no, it, it is, and and that's the science in these off-year elections that that is so difficult to figure out, right? It's not a midterm electorate where you you know you think you probably have seventy to eighty percent of what you get in the presidential cycle. It's really about the environment and trying to model out what that looks like. Now, this has been a pretty high-profile race, right? So you got to think that it's going to exceed the seventeen turnout, which I think is probably not a bad thing for Yunkin at this point. But but if there's a real open question. There's also this interesting thing that I was talking about with somebody today, where you know they didn't have a presidential primary in 2020 on the Republican side. They had a you know a Democratic one, in which an awful lot of Republicans participated in strategically voting, or they just went because it was election day and they thought they were going to get a ballot and they realized there was no Republican uh, running in the, right. in, a, in a prime in a presidential primary in Virginia last year. And so those people are difficult to model, right? If you look at a, a data set, they show up as Democratic primary voters, right? And I'm going to assure you, know, sure, a lot of them aren't. And so it, it is tough to try to get a perfect sense of who this electorate is. But, but I will say, here's, here's the thing that I look at more than anything else. What are the issues that are being decided here as to how people vote? There's only one candidate that is talking about issues like education on an offensive posture, and one that is in a defensive posture. Every single poll has showed that the number one issue that's facing voters that are deciding in the governor's election is the issue of education. I got to think that's a really good thing for Glenn Youngkin.
2: And probably the economy as well, because of the exact same problem that many people who don't live in virginia are facing right the other 49 states and our listeners across the country are thinking well yes schools are an issue in virginia the economy is an issue in virginia same here they just get to vote this year we have to wait until next year just briefly josh we have about a, a minute or so left your thoughts on the national environment and some of these really dreadful polling numbers for the president recently
8: yeah, I mean, there's a nexus here, and that there's never been a better barometer for what happens in the upcoming mid- midterms than than what kind of change environment the Virginia uh, uh, exhibits on election day. You go back to 05 and 09 when Democrats had big wins in the governor's mansion; they both took Congress and they took the presidency. And then in 09, when when McDonnell won, uh, ultimately Republicans had a huge comeback. Same was true in 2017 of Democrats. So I think that's similar here. And you can see it's always kind of a canary in the coal mine for what happens over the next year that ultimately shapes the midterms.
2: Josh Holmes, founding partner of Cavalry, LLC, co-host of the Ruthless podcast, which at least one guy over at Politico doesn't care for. Many others do, however, and he's a longtime GOP aide. Uh, He's a Virginia voter, as you just heard, and we're all just sort of holding our breath collectively here with, what, just over three hours to go until the polls close in the Old Dominion. Josh, always appreciate it, always enjoy it.
8: Guy, very much a pleasure. We'll talk uh, soon.
2: We absolutely will, Josh Holmes, on the
1: Guy Benson Show, back after this. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My
5: name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will I humbly say single-handedly save the world. You're
1: welcome. It's Kennedy saves the world. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
2: Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Yesterday we played the clip for you. Terry McAuliffe making one of his other closing arguments on education, saying that there are just too many white teachers. He's saying there's a mismatch there. Too many white teachers for students of color and we've got to diversify. I couldn't help but wonder, could they bring in some guest teachers like Ralph Northam or Mark Herring? The two guys that he's campaigning with who have worn blackface, maybe have a little visiting professor from the great white North. Canada, a little little guest, uh, Professor Trudeau could show up. It's amazing that this guy has the stones, the chutzpah, to accuse the Republicans and Glenn Youngkin of running this racially divisive, racially charged campaign when he's actively campaigning with two blackface guys and he's saying that there are too many white teachers in Virginia schools. There's just so much projection going on with Terry McAuliffe. And it really is just, you know, A slap in the face to all these parents who have been so upset for so many different reasons about education in schools to have your last rally with Randy Weingarten of all people. I mean, they're just putting it right out there. This is who we are. This is what we're going to do. The mandates are coming. The restrictions we know best. And if they win, they are going to take that lesson to heart. Which is why I think so many people are so interested in the outcome of this race not just in Virginia, but nationally. If you are in Virginia and you haven't voted yet, you've got about three hours. Get out there and vote. The early vote is going to go Dem. It's going to be blue by, you know, high single digits into mid double digits. That's to be expected. If you're in line waiting to vote by 7 p.m., you can vote. The whole math here, the whole arithmetic for the Republicans is a big election day turnout from their people. That's what it's going to take. A nail biter in Virginia on The Guy Benson Show. Another hour coming up.
1: It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
2: A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday, Election Day, in a handful of places around the country. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Thank you for tuning in 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free, of charge, and on demand to you every single day. Fox News alert as we get going here in the hour. Another good day, positive day on Wall Street. The Dow finishing up 139 points. The Dow closes 36,053. How about that? Well, still to come on today's show, Bill Hammer later this hour, Leslie Marshall in the next hour. But our next guest is Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post and FoxNews.com. Carol, great to have you back here. Welcome back.
5: Hi, Guy. Thanks for having me.
2: I want to get your reaction to a few different stories today. I've talked a lot about Virginia. We won't get too much into Virginia with you. The only thing I want your opinion on is just as someone who has been really front and center in the education battle now for well over a year as a parent yourself. And you've watched the Virginia gubernatorial race from a distance. I just wonder what went through your head when you saw last night Democrat in the race, Terry McAuliffe, decided to conclude his campaign stumping with Randy Weingarten, who spoke at his final rally.
5: So I'm just wondering, who does she appeal to? Who is the voter who's like, oh, Randy Weingarten's supporting him? I guess I should go out and vote for Terry McAuliffe. I, I have a really hard time picturing that person, even if you are, say, pro-teachers union after all this time and even if you think schools should have been closed last year, like Randy Weingarten demanded that they would, who is the person that thinks that her uh, you know support would make a difference? I, I just I have a really hard time picturing that person, especially after what we've seen in this campaign for so long, where the issue of education has been so front and center and the fact that parents should be involved in their kids' education has been a major thing uh, and the teachers unions obviously oppose that. She very openly opposes that, and so does Terry McAuliffe, and I don't. I just don't get how this was the, the closing move for him. I'm scared that if he wins, if McAuliffe wins, uh, that the lesson will be that the teachers' union should be supported, and they should be, you know, amplified and held up as uh, the heroes that they believe themselves to be.
2: Yeah, that's one of the things at stake, certainly in Virginia. I will remind listeners that the polls close, and voting ends in Virginia at 7 p.m. Eastern, so under three hours from right now. If you're in line, if you're waiting, you're standing online, line, you can still vote. But 7 p.m., the cutoff there, it's 8 p.m. in New Jersey, which also has the off-year election. Governor Phil Murphy up for re-election. His challenger is Jack Chittaretti, the Republican there. There's also some local races that are interesting in Minnesota, in Seattle, also in New York City, Carol, where you are from. I don't really think too many people are on pins and needles about the uh, result of the mayoral election. I think that's uh, pretty clear what's going to happen there. However, I also want to ask you about this next related question. The sitting New York City mayor, Bill de Blasio, who even among many on the left is not exactly the most popular politician ever to grace New York's political scene. There are strong rumors that he is— On the brink, he's doing the legwork to announce a run for governor in your state to replace Governor Cuomo, who, of course, stepped down and he'll have, you know, he'll have some competition It would be probably a pretty rough and tumble Democratic primary. But as someone who has lived in New York City and then you escaped New York City for a while and went to Florida, I know that you do not have very much love lost for Mayor de Blasio and how does his potential gubernatorial race strike you so
5: it's- so first uh, you were saying about the mayoral race happening today in New York City and yes, um, you know, Eric Adams is probably going to be our next mayor and uh, Curtis Lee was probably not going to pull out a victory today but I think that people who are, you know, kind of right of center should see this as a bit of a win because the race would have been very competitive had it been another socialist I I think even in places like New York City, in deep, deep blue places like New York City, people have sort of had enough of the leftism and Eric Adams won his primary specifically because he was such a moderate and he wasn't anti uh, he he wasn't for defunding the police and he wasn't for any of the crazy ideas that the left has. So it's it's not a huge win, but it's a bit of a win for people right of center. As for Bill de Blasio, um, I laughed out loud when I woke up to that news today. I thought it was hilarious. Um, He got zero point zero percent when he ran for president. I don't think those numbers will be much different in New York state. I, I have a really hard time Seeing who might be his constituency in New York State, there is already uh, some far left people running. There's already uh, the Kathy Hochul, who's the current governor, is sort of seen as a moderate, even though she masks two year olds, she forces the masking two year olds. So I-, I don't really see her as moderate myself, but in general, she's seen as politically moderate in this state. And I just don't see what lane um, a communist has at this point in the race for governor. So I think his numbers are in the zero point zero range.
2: Something that has come, something that's come up in New, Jer- in New York is – because you're, you're talking about your state and your city, and I, I don't necessarily disagree. I mean he, he clearly feels like he's destined for bigger and better things, but he has not been a beloved mayor of New York City. He made no impact in the presidential race, and it will be at least two other significant players in that primary for governor. One of the issues that is now being discussed in New York, New York City in particular, is vaccine mandates – Now, I thought it was very interesting in the new NBC News poll that we talked about here on the show a bit yesterday, really brutal for the Democrats and for uh, President Biden in a lot of different ways. One of the little items that was maybe not noticed by a lot of folks farther down in the poll was the vaccine mandate policy from President Biden, you know, where people effectively need to get the vaccine in order to be employed. And that question was asked. And one of the arguments in favor of it just a number of weeks ago when it was announced was that it's popular. Well, now it's not as popular anymore. It's underwater with 50 percent, a bare majority, disapproving of that policy. And I'll just say the caveat that I always do. I am very pro-vaccine. I got my vaccine as soon as I could. I encourage everyone that I know and love to do the same. And I don't back down from that one bit. I think it is life-saving. It is a a modern miracle the covid vaccines and i'm very grateful that i had mine i think the mandate question is a separate one Uh, i think the mandate question for children is one that is coming and we've gotten a few hints of that already for example in the virginia gubernatorial race seeing the shift in the polling nationally Carol, away from people just saying, oh yes, of course we support this. Now it's, you know, it's upside down that question, at least in the NBC News poll. There are questions, for instance, about first responders in cities like yours, FDNY, NYPD, uh, you know, when it comes to airlines, when there are disruptions, if there are disruptions and if people feel like their public safety is endangered because of mandates like this, I, I would imagine potentially that Support could drop further. What is your take on vaccine mandates and sort of the latest front in that skirmish?
5: So, like you, I'm very pro-vaccine. I was vaccinated pretty much as soon as it could be. Um, but more importantly, I got my mother and my in-laws vaccinated as soon as they could be. I would be refreshing the page all day to get them their vaccine, because as we all know, COVID is a, a virus that affects older people more significantly significantly than it affects younger people. I mean, these are just it's a math equation. It's just the numbers. Um, and if people saw that. Uh, you know, whether or not you should get vaccinated as a math equation, um, I think we'd be in a much better place. I think for people like firemen and police departments and uh, sanitation departments, they tend to be younger. They tend to be healthy and fit. And they tend to have worked all through the pandemic, so they likely have already had COVID. Um, so I feel like forcing them into vaccination just makes no sense. And I think people are really starting to realize that. And as services decline, I mean, you can walk around New York City and there's even more garbage than usual. So we're seeing services decline. I mean, we're, we're going to feel uh, fire departments being understaffed and police departments being understaffed and, and as we feel it, I think people are going to regret that we took this hard line stance on mandates. I am so pro vaccines. I think if you had asked me, five years ago, you know, should we have mandates for, you know, the MMR vaccine, like where you wouldn't be allowed to fly or you shouldn't be allowed to like, you know, obviously not go to school, but like we don't actually mandate them for adults. Like the other vaccines are only mandated for kids to go to school, but they're not, you know, you can get on a flight to Europe without having an MMR vaccine. And I think five years ago, I would have said, no, no, you you must have it. But the COVID vaccine is very different. It is a vaccine that you can still you can still have the virus. As you know, I know that you uh, had one of the breakthrough cases and you I can did. still pass on the virus. So this isn't the kind of classic vaccine that we're talking about where you're uh, both protected and you're incapable of passing it on. I think I would have a very different view of mandates if it was, uh, but it's not. So it's more like the flu vaccine where we're not going to eradicate flu um, it's going to be something that's endemic to us, we have to learn to live with it. we have to protect the vulnerable, and we have to move on and these mandates are going to cause more disarray than they uh help because again you can still you can get the vaccine and yet you could still pass on the virus. We're not really yes solving and the vulnerable
2: your your point about the vulnerable that does not entail overwhelmingly statistically mathematically that does not entail children. the children are not vulnerable to this disease and really serious outcomes from COVID. There are a tiny, tiny, tiny number of exceptions that are horrible and gut-wrenching. That's also not the way that you make policy. And that, I think, is another difference about you know the impact on kids of a disease should probably influence the debate over whether to make a vaccination mandatory against that disease, particularly for children in schools. Last question. Speaking of schools, we'll come full circle here, Carol Markowitz, uh, you wrote a column about the culture war and you know president obama came to virginia and he said a lot of this stuff in schools it's just a trumped up phony culture war from the right-wing media and at least on the ground in virginia there are a lot of parents who are not right-wing who would not agree with that you're sort of leaning into this whole thing just give us a few of your thoughts in the time that we have left
5: i think a culture war is important because it's a fight over culture and culture is important Uh, i don't think that it's Uh, something that's fake, that parents all across the country saw what their kids are learning in school and decided, no, I I don't like this, and decided to stand up at school board meetings and risk, you know, somebody calling their work because we're very in a very conformist cancel culture moment. So I think these parents are taking a risk, they're taking a chance, and they're fighting in this war because culture is important. I think Republicans shouldn't shy away from it. This is Important and don't let anybody uh, call you names or, or or make you afraid to stand up and say that I don't think that what they're learning in school is appropriate and I, I will not let this happen on my watch.
2: Do you think that the overreach of the federal government, the DOJ, the Attorney General getting the FBI involved right with these school board meetings? Do you think that the backlash of that was so swift that and ferocious that perhaps? that tool that they were trying to potentially abuse has been neutralized because people spoke out
5: yeah i think i think people really realized what they were doing because it made no sense to have the attorney general involved if if something happens at a local school board meeting if somebody threatens somebody if somebody hits somebody if anything like that happens that's a local police matter the fact that the attorney general got, got involved and said that the fbi would be involved That was meant to shut down speech. And parents heard that message loud and clear. I think they got louder after that that happened. I think they understood that they were about to be uh, shut down. And I I think Merrick Garland had no great explanation for his involvement in it. He kept saying, we're not going to we're not going to do this to parents. We're not going to try to shut down speech. So then what are you here for? What's the point of you? Why don't we just call the local police department if something goes wrong? And he had no good answer for that.
2: Because there was no good answer. I mean, that's that's the reality. He didn't have a good answer because none existed, because this thing was a political setup. It was a huge mistake. It was a revealing episode for sure. And they got caught. I mean, that's basically what happened. And things turned on them in a way that they were not expecting and were not hoping for. Carol Markowitz, columnist at The New York Post. She writes for foxnews.com as well. Always great to have you, Carol. We'll do it again soon.
5: Thanks So much. Thank you. Definitely.
2: It's the Guy Benson show. We'll be right back.
1: The Guy Benson Show. More next from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of the Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Dominic podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. Bill Hemmer
2: in the next segment. He's on his way. He'll be at the Big Magic Wall tonight up in New York in the Fox uh, coverage of election night. looks like I might be joining the coverage in the 11 o'clock hour Eastern with Brett and Martha. So it's a heads up there. I'll be on Gutfeld tomorrow night, if all goes according to plan. So heading to New York after the show today. I want to talk briefly, though, about something that we touched on with Brett Baer involving the fight on Capitol Hill among Democrats. So I'll remind you briefly of what Joe Manchin, part of what he said yesterday, the moderate senator, Democrat, of course, from West Virginia in cut eight.
6: Holding this bill hostage is not going to work in getting my support for reconciliation bill. Throughout the last three months, I've been straightforward about my concerns that I will not support a reconciliation package that expands social programs and irresponsibly adds to our $29 trillion and national debt that no one seems to really care about or even talk about. Nor will I support a package that risks hurting American families suffering from historic inflation.
2: All right, so that seemed like it could be a real problem for the progressives, who already have said, you know, we don't trust this guy, we don't trust him, we don't trust cinema. That's why we want to do Build Back Better first, and we're going to keep holding back the bipartisan infrastructure bill. But it looks like maybe they're walking away from that demand a little bit, Pramila Jayapal, who's the progressive caucus chair from Washington state, said this yesterday, cut 10.
7: I just have to believe what the president says. And the president said right after the senator spoke that he is confident he can deliver 51 votes for this plan. I am going to trust the president. Our members are going to trust the president. And um, we are going to do the job that we need to do, which is pass it through, pass both bills through the House. I do believe it will happen this week.
2: This week. So sounding a little bit more sanguine, saying we're just going to trust the president if it goes with – I'm reading between the lines. If they go with the infrastructure bill first, bipartisan one, then so be it. But we have to trust that we're going to get the other bill through as well. I just think the other bill could change a lot. That's probably what worries them. I've seen that they've put this uh, temporary SALT deduction back in, which would be effectively a tax cut for the rich. (laughs) It's amazing the Democrats are going to do this. A tax cut for the rich. It's going to be a huge element, at least as it stands right now, of this build back better thing that they're pretending is all about, you know, working people and so on and so forth. No, these well-to-do, well well healed suburban Dems are really desperate to deal with this tax issue for their folks. And again, I wonder how that will sit with not just the progressives in Congress, but the progressive base if that is in. But other things like, you know. Uh, child care there are a few other things that are out and i'm seeing some rumblings already on progressive twitter people not happy about that i'll just say this i understand that there are maybe a dozen or so republicans in the house who support the bipartisan infrastructure bill they want to vote for it and i'm open to the argument i understand why i've seen both sides i've i've sort of explained it articulated it here on the show however There are rumors that Pelosi would still possibly need to count on some Republican votes to get the infrastructure bill passed. I don't think that Republicans should have any hand in that. If that means withholding votes, sitting out on the sidelines, waiting to see if the Democrats can demonstrate that they have a majority on their own, then let the chips fall if they can. If not, do not throw them a lifeline because these two bills are connected and the Dem-only bill is a debacle. We'll step aside. Bill Hemmer joins me in studio in New York when we return.
1: From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com. It is The Guy Benson
2: Show. Every weekday, right here, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. If you can't listen live, we are joined in studio up in New York as I'm here in D.C. for now, although I'm heading up to New York this evening. It's Bill Hammer, co-host of America's Newsroom, 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Also has his fantastic podcast, hammer Time, at foxnewspodcasts.com He'll be at the wall tonight for the election up in Studio F, the big one. And, Bill, it's great to have you back here.
9: Guy, good to be with you, Guy. How are you doing?
2: I am doing well. I have to say I am always fascinated by you and your colleagues who are at other networks who are in charge and entrusted with the gigantic touchscreen, right, where there's so many moving parts to it. There's so many little granular details that you need to be prepped on. I would just love some insight into the homework process, the Uh, preparation process.
9: Uh, Good question. Um, Look, you um, have to be diligent and you have to be um, into the detail is how I would say it. And if you're not going to take the time to learn the detail, then you're probably not going to do it well. And uh, Virginia's kind of interesting guy. It's it's the kind of state that is, you know, look at Iowa, right? You got 99 counties and they're all the same shape. I, I can figure out where Des Moines is in my sleep. Uh, Virginia is different because it has 38 to 40 cities, their own municipalities that govern themselves, and they uh-huh. come up like little dots on the screen, and some of them are small and somewhat relatively insignificant, and some of them are big-time significant, potentially in a, in a close election, and it ju- it gives us a feature that you do not normally find when you study these states.
2: So when you're thinking about, okay, here's a bellwether county, right, Mm -hmm. or a bellwether city even, or a bellwether region, and then maybe there's an area that's not so much of a bellwether, but one campaign, let's say Yunkin here, is going to try to make real inroads. They're not going to win it, but they want to improve over what happened last time in 2017 or happened last year in 2020 in terms of the margins. Do you sit down and meet ahead of time with the decision desk people, the polling people to get a sense of, you know, what those margins could look like? Or are you just hunkered down going through like, you know, like a quarterback watching tape in a dark mm-hmm. room by yourself going through all this <laughs> stuff day in and day out leading up?
9: I think some of it happens in a dark room. That's where you start to, you know, focus and concentrate. And, and then you emerge from that space with your own questions about this, that, or the other. And we do have a very good and thorough team who goes through different detail at different times, different aspects of the state. We have, however, put together a list where it's predictive, where – you would think Youngkin would need to get to a certain percentage of the vote in said county. He would have to improve on Trump's margin by this amount or even Ed Gillespie from 2017 by that amount. So it, it, it kind of gives us a guardrail because if we get into the 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock hour and we haven't made a call and we just think this race is too close, that that's where those predictive models could come in quite handy to um, – take the viewer along with us and tell that story. He's not at this mark. If he gets there, perhaps this happens. Or maybe McAuliffe is underperforming at this point, but he's overperforming over here. And then you kind of set a balance. Um, I think the easiest way to understand it is that... it is the best game of politics that plays out in real time that you can mm-hmm. find anywhere. And when you're standing in front of the board and things are changing in color and things are changing based on the tabulation of the numbers from different counties and in this state, cities, metropolitan areas, um, you get the information before anyone else. And that's that's kind of fun. And I, I find yeah. exciting.
2: And I was just talking about this on and off the air today. I enjoy election nights, even though they can be, you know, a roller coaster. And depending on how things go, if you're invested in the outcome, it's, you know, it's good or it's bad or whatever. Election day, I cannot stand because you're just, you're, you're reading all this noise on social media and this rumor there. And finally, you actually get to bring us real information actual results as opposed to you know sources on a campaign say or projections of this or this model might point us in this direction that finally gets it you know it matters it shapes the discussion mm-hmm. it shapes expectations but that stuff at some point sort of gets broomed off to the side and the results start to speak for themselves. How does it get decided along the way? where they've got you know, Brett and Martha doing you know, election night coverage, and there's yeah. something interesting happen happening in a certain spot. Are you guys talking with the control room, saying, hey, let's let's go over to Bill, or are they set pieces that you guys have in advance, or is it sort of a combination of we, those? We have a factors?
9: plan. I'd say a combination is probably the best way to explain it. We have a plan that evolves in real time. I tell you, a guy, um, look, the polls close at 7 o'clock. I can look at a blank screen at 6.59, and <clears> – <throat> Perhaps by 7.05 or 7.15, I would say, all those counties uh, start to fill in. And it's red and it's blue, and it's just a few numbers down here and maybe a few numbers over here and and maybe a rural area. Then you'll get a city to pop in. It won't be the full vote, but it'll be a little bit. So you get a little batch here and there. And so during the 7 to 8 o'clock hour, I, I, I think there's high drama and um, – well, sure. A, a lot of tension, okay. too, actually. yeah. yeah. It, what, what I studied the most was the election 11 months ago between Biden and Trump, and then the governor's race between Gillespie and Ralph Northam from 2017. Those mm-hmm. are my two baselines right now As as we go into the night.
2: How do you correct for the initial reaction – Because we know that what's getting tabulated first is that early vote, which is gonna skew blue, right? The the Yunkin people, the McCall people, they agree on that. It's gonna skew blue early. Are you looking at margins? At that point, and then are you trying to figure out you know, what the turnout's going to be on election day itself? Because that's, that's an interesting X factor that can sort of muddy yeah. things, especially very early on in the evening.
9: I would say two things. Our decision desk does that, and they're sequestered in a room here at 1211 Avenue of the Americas in Midtown Manhattan. They're really crunching those numbers. Um, for, for me, um, I'm trying to pick up on trends, guy. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to figure out like where, where we're going. Um, and then we've got the great tabulations from 11 months ago and four years ago that will give us a basis of comparison.
2: Share the baseline. Now,
9: now listen, I've been scrambling over Twitter all day today, and I'm sure you have too, and there are people inside Virginia that are talking to individual precincts within the counties or within the cities or municipalities, and that's where the granular data is, and I'm, I'm trying to understand it. I'm trying to pick it up. I'm trying to see if the fox poll from a week ago has really does have Yunkin up eight points and all, all the anecdotal stuff that I see right now I, I I can't figure out which way this race is going i I, I think as of 443 East Coast time it's an absolute toss-up
2: yeah. I mean, and that's so often the case, right, because the anecdotes come in fast and furious and people will gravitate towards stuff that is going to make them excited or it's going to freak them out. Right. And this happens every year on Election Day where people get these little snippets of information and they only have so much value, if any. And then the real value starts to come in when the results become clearer and clearer. We have about two and a half minutes left here in the segment, Bill. Virginia, of course, is the main course of this meal tonight. There's so much attention on Virginia, but it's not the only election happening. Virginia has uh, a lot, but New Jersey has their governor race and their state-level races as well. We've got mayoral races in places like New York City, Boston. Uh, Some interesting questions, ballot questions in cities like Minneapolis, Seattle, and elsewhere. How much attention are you going to be spending on other places other than virginia what's that balance like Um, and what what strikes your attention what what catches your attention
9: great question we have reporters stationed throughout the country to cover a lot of those races my attention is primarily on virginia um in part because you know what's unique about virginia is that as a governor you can only hold one term you probably knew that guy um, yep. Because that's what the state, one consecutive term. Right. That's what the Commonwealth Constitution allows you to do in Virginia. And they have um, what is considered an off year election following a presidential election. I imagine that. I mean, that, that Virginia has a referendum every four years on what's happening, you could argue, in Washington, D.C., just across the Potomac in the north.
2: Mm-hmm. And the other, I would say, partial quirk in a place like Virginia is and I live in Virginia, we don't register by party. So you don't have registered Republicans, registered Democrats, registered independents. Everyone's just a voter. And I think that also can be a little bit tricky when it comes to modeling and, you know, prediction projections, because at least in some of these other states, you can kind of look roughly at the numbers of -hmm. of registered and figure out how the independents are breaking and do some math that way. It's a little bit more complicated in a commonwealth like Virginia. What
9: county are you?
2: I'm in Arlington County.
9: Okay, Deep so blue. it's just a little spot on the map, guy.
2: Yep, but yep, it has up there.
9: it has a lot of votes there in that small little it does. area.
2: It does, and the question is, will it have the same margins, similar margins to 2020, for example? This year, uh, anecdotal evidence might suggest that Yunkin could do a a bit, or even a little bit more than a bit better mm-hmm. there, but. You know, is he getting the turnout he needs down south in the southwest? Is he cutting into the leads in Fairfax and Loudoun and that kind of thing? These are the questions that Bill Hemmer will be helping us answer tonight on Fox News Channel on the election coverage. Virginia primarily, some other states as well. Bill, looking forward to watching. Thank you, brother. We'll see you tonight.
9: Right on, man. Good to be with you, Guy.
2: You bet. Bill Hemmer on the Guy Benson Show. We'll
1: be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him. You love him. You want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
2: Here's the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday, Election Day. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Well, I think we have time, even though it's Election Day, to sneak in a little Woke Tales. <laughs> Two stories out of the Ivy League, one from Cornell, where a professor, I guess, and this is now reported pretty widely, had told his class that he will fail any student that he observes not wearing their mask properly at all times in his lectures, which is, I would say unto itself, a very strange and questionable policy. Like if he catches you, what, taking a sip of water or having your mask only covering your mouth or something for a moment, or maybe you forgot to put it on for half a second, does that constitute a failure for the class? You know, I know that professors can just kind of be dictators in their little realms, but that seems a bit excessive. It's like power trip plus neuroses on parade from this Cornell professor And what happened was he sent out an email to the class calling out a few students in the lecture hall, which is, I guess, a pretty big class, by posting their physical descriptions and saying, if I can find out who these people are, I'm going to fail them based on my previous instructions. Again, this sounds like a crazy person to me, a vindictive, crazy person. And in one of the physical descriptions of the person he was upset about, who was not wearing their mask correctly, he described the student as having a prominent, quote, hooked nose. That is uh, yikes. So having another normal one up at Cornell. Meanwhile, at Yale, here's a story from the Washington Free Beacon headline, Yale Law Diversity Director at center of trap house controversy, got an anti-Semite invited to the Yale Law Journal. So this plays off of another controversy where a Yale law student and a member of the Federalist Society, so a conservative, had made in some email or some correspondence a joke about a trap house involving drugs, and this was deemed to be offensive. They racialized it, and there was a big hubbub over trying to get this kid Punished This law student punished, and Yale launched an investigation. There was a huge backlash as well in favor of free speech and saying this is crazy. Well, the diversity director at Yale Law was, I guess, involved in that witch hunt, which I think resolved itself okay after people intervened. But again, it's just we're in, we're in very deeply crazy times. Here's the story from the Free Beacon. This is a follow-up. The Yale Law School administrator, who was caught on tape pressuring a student to apologize for an allegedly racist party invitation, pushed the Yale Law Journal to host a diversity trainer who told students that anti-Semitism is merely a form of anti-blackness and suggested that the FBI artificially inflates the number of anti-Semitic hate crimes. So this is going really well. This is the uh, diversity director at Yale inviting this diversity trainer. This is, you know, an equity person, right? An anti racist equity expert to come to Yale and lecture the students. And apparently, this person doesn't really believe that anti Semitism exists as a, its own independent phenomenon. It's really just a form of anti blackness, and it's overblown anyway. Mm. Quote I consider myself very liberal. A student quoted in this memo about this incident said, but the presentation from this person delivered on September 17th to members of the prestigious law review was, quote, almost like a conservative parody of what anti-racism trainings are like. These were comments from this diversity trainer named Erica Hart, who is a self-described kinky sex ed teacher who works with children as young as nine. She shocked members of the predominantly liberal law review, many of whom characterized the presentation as anti-Semitic. The controversy began when a law journal editor asked Hart, this presenter, this equity expert, why her presentation had addressed inequities like pretty privilege and fat phobia, but not anti-Semitism. According to this memo which collected feedback on the training from the editors, Hart responded that she'd already covered anti-Semitism by discussing anti-blackness because some Jews are black. Sounds like we got a real genius on our hands here too. She also raised questions about the FBI data showing that Jews are the most frequent targets of hate crimes in the United States, implying, in the words of one journal editor, that the people compiling those statistics had, quote, an agenda. You know, whenever you are in a hotbed of wokeness, you scratch the surface and you're going to find some full-blown anti-Semitism in the vicinity, if not right there where you stand. Here is a trainer brought in by Yale to do equity and anti-racism and anti-hate, and she says – That she already covered anti-Semitism because some Jews are black and she was focusing on anti-blackness and really all those stats showing that anti-Semitic crimes and hate crimes are a scourge. Well, maybe we shouldn't believe those because of the agenda. They might be inflated. Quote, she basically said anti-Semitism is a subset of anti-blackness. The editor told the Free Beacon she didn't recognize there could be anti-Semitism against other people. That characterization is corroborated by two other students quoted in the memo. So this is what they're doing at one of the most elite universities in the country. This is the type of person that they bring in, right? The kinky, sex-positive expert who deals with children on that front and then tomorrow's future law leaders on this front who evidently seems to think that anti-Semitism isn't really a problem and falls under some other category and it's overblown by, you know, wink, wink, the agenda. Where wokeness exists, often anti-Semitism is not far behind. That's it for Woke Tales. That's it for this hour of The Guy Benson Show. Final hour coming up. You don't want to miss it. Happy hour straight ahead.
1: This and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Guy Benson.
2: However, the happy hour on this Tuesday, election day in Virginia and New Jersey and elsewhere. Thank you for listening to The Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. We encourage you to listen live. Many ways to do so. Between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, there's also a podcast, which is free and on demand every day, the whole show. GuyBensonShow.com, foxnews.podcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And the happy hour is brought to you by... The Finnish long drink, which is delicious and refreshing. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can plug in your zip code. They can tell you where you can go buy this elixir. It's a great alcoholic beverage. I'm a fan of it. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only. Please and thank you and always drink responsibly. Joining us now as we kick off our final hour today is Leslie Marshall, Democratic analyst and Fox News contributor. Leslie, welcome back.
0: Thanks, Guy, for having me back.
2: I see that you have an op-ed at FoxNews.com. Your take from a Democratic perspective on the Virginia governor's race. Just walk us through how you're feeling today and what you think some of the lessons might be, even though obviously we don't have a final result yet. It's a very close race. We know that for sure. How are you feeling? What are you thinking?
0: Uh, interestingly enough, I feel very similar uh, to the uh, day of the recall election here in California. Um, if you remember, right up until the 11th hour, uh, talk show host Larry Elder, who I know and I'm friends with, and I'm, like you, a talk show host, and I, do have, I have no business being governor of California, and uh, uh, the governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, were neck and neck up, up until the last week, a little bit more than a week, and the enthusiasm was very low among Democrats and very high among people people who were in favor of recalling Newsom whether they were republicans independents or even some democrats Um, I was also concerned, if Gavin Newsom won, uh, that it would be tight. So, honestly, I would echo the same sentiments. I'm I'm nervous because it's tight. Uh, Do I think McAuliffe can win? I can, but I am concerned about the uh, lack of enthusiasm. Your second part of the question, which is, what do we learn? Well, whether he wins or loses, I think my party needs to learn a few things. Um, One, on the progressive, and I've said this before, I'm a moderate, uh, centrist Democrat. And I've, I've said before, when you have the majority... And I told and I them, too, take a page out of the Republican playbook, okay? And that is unite. Republicans do that well. They held their nose and voted for Trump. Many of them couldn't stand Trump, but they were Republicans. They wore that red on their chest, that red cape, and were loyal to the end. The Democrats need to have more of that. Uh, the Progressive Caucus is a problem, you know, with that. They need to learn with a negotiation. You get some of what you want, but you leave some of what you want on the table. That is when everybody gets wins and loses. That is a true negotiation. And ask anybody at the top who's a gazillionaire who uh, negotiate or has people do that for them on a daily basis. Second, uh, Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, they need to make a decision as to, you know, what party are you a part of and why are you doing this? Because if you look at polling in Sinema and Manchin's district, the people in their districts actually favor the legislation that they're dragging their feet on. And I just want to well, say two quick things. Cause it, I, I, just, I know that you also you know, have time uh, time constraints, but, you know, we have a gubernatorial election today that's very, very close um, certainly this infighting and this dragging, it doesn't help the president, doesn't help his poll numbers, doesn't help Terry McAuliffe, which is a fellow Democrat, and, you know, keeping uh, Democratic control of Virginia, which has been a purple and now some would argue a very blue state. And then, of course, it doesn't help coming up in the midterm elections, especially when you look at about 15 Democrats that are very vulnerable. So my thing as a Democrat is, do one – should have done this not together in two pieces infrastructure, easy pass, easy win. We may not be having this conversation today, even if we were just looking at you know part B if you will, and then you know two. Um You know, who are you doing this for? I understand paid family leave, lower drug prices, especially for those 15 vulnerable Democrats. They are worried about their constituency. But the voices we hear the loudest in my party, on the far left, or from Joe Manchin, are not echoing the sentiments of their constituents, and they're not helping us with midterms, the president with ratings, or Terry McAuliffe, who should be up by more than a dead heat, or by 1%, or down by 1%, depending on what poll you read today.
2: Yeah, in a state that one year ago... Joe Biden carried handily by 10 points, right? It was a double-digit Democratic state a year ago, and I think it's safe to say there will not be a double-digit Democratic victory tonight when the votes are all counted, and there's a decent chance that the Democrats could lose that seat. And I think some of it might have to do with D.C. and what's happening and the dysfunction on Capitol Hill. I think there's also a national environment that you mentioned. I also think that the quality of the campaigns and the candidates, that stuff matters. The issues at play in Virginia, they matter. But you mentioned President Biden. He came to Arlington, Virginia not long ago. He did one event in the home stretch of the campaign for Terry McAuliffe. He is not popular nationally at the moment. He's underwater by double digits according to multiple polls. And that obviously, Leslie, you know this, is a huge indicator heading into a midterm cycle. Usually the party in power at the White House has a rough midterm cycle. Two years later, that's historically what happens. It can start to get more than just a little rough when the president in question is unpopular with the American people. And I wonder what you think Joe Biden's negative favorability and job approval rating can be attributed to, and what he can and maybe what he can't do to turn that around.
0: Well, honestly, I'm not going to blame the media, which I'm a part of, but I do think the American people constantly just see negativity. What they don't see is how many people are vaccinated, rather than the you know anti-vax you know rhetoric. What they don't see is how many less people are dying from, or people are in ICUs, or less people are getting uh, COVID. Uh, what they don't see is you know uh, they they're not hearing positive messaging, and, quite, and my and my party is not doing that, that as well. What they don't see are the merits of what is. Being being put forth in this package, they just see a lot of negative headlines. They're see, and, and you know whether it's infighting or you know this is going to help you or this is going to cause inflation. Um, so you know messaging from my party, media, and of course people that aren't in my party, um, you know it, it give this idea that it's all gloom and, uh, you know doom and gloom, and it isn't. And and so there are different areas of responsibility regarding that messaging because you know to me as a former journalist, I'm a political analyst, and I I opine on the facts, but the facts are this positive. A negative on every single situation you know out there obviously there's not negative if you know somebody uh not positive somebody dies from covid but it certainly is positive when less people are dying uh from covid As an no, but it's not it's just between... messaging
2: right leslie this is not just a messaging problem that democrats have exclusively there's there are reality problems too people aren't just inventing the way that they feel because they're being tricked by what the two anti-biden media i i, I strain to really buy into that
0: well, no, I'm not saying it's ju- I'm not saying it's just that. As I had mentioned prior when we talked about uh, the uh, legislation that's not being passed by the Democrats, they're not uniting. They're, they're, they're not uniting. I mean, how, how badly do you want this? How badly do you want to stay in power? You know, just because historically, you know, you lose power, you lose seats in the House, you lose seats in the Senate, you, you lose the majority when, you know, your party is, you know, in, in the White House and the Oval Office typically. OK, that doesn't mean that you just, you know, give up and pick up your ba- pack up your bag and go home. And, and, yeah, and, and I, I want to get to that. Like some of my party is not fighting hard enough.
2: Yeah, I actually want to get to the infighting within Democrats in a second. The last point I would make, though, is it's not just bad messaging. It's not just lack of unity among Democrats. The numbers among independents, I think, tell a lot of the story. People are not happy with what they are seeing and what they are feeling in their actual lives, whether it was objecting to what they saw in the pullout of Afghanistan at the border, more close, you know, closer to home. You've got inflation and you've got shortages and that sort of thing. That's tangible stuff that isn't just smoke and mirrors leading a bunch of independents astray, right? That's what they wake up and see and feel each day in their lives for their families, right? There's something to that. There must be, right?
0: You're, you're correct on that. But again, we're a year away from the election, which some to some people is around the corner. But as you know, it's a lifetime away. And. Yep between now and then, it will be exactly what you just said. What are they feeling? With the exception of Afghanistan, Afghanistan is even in the top 20 of voters, whether they're Democrat, Republican or independent uh, minds. Immigration is, education is, uh, the economy is, uh, COVID is, um, and, and you know, at the end of the day, in uh, a year from now, how people are feeling, and I, I feel that, and I hope certainly, our nation will be in a much different, and better position, and they'll feel more positive, and we won't see uh, those types of numbers among independents. I'm not, I, you know, I'm very honest, and I think that's why, you know, you guys like like having me on, even though I'm a, I'm a Democrat, I don't just say, hey, if my team says it, I agree with it. Um, anybody, left or right, when they see independent numbers, um, you know, uh, you know, move away from their party in favorability, you don't want any voters moving away uh, in favorability from your party, especially toward your opponent.
2: Yeah, and that's, that's what happened to the Republicans in the previous administrations. It's what has happened so far under the Biden administration, and I agree that Afghanistan won't be a top animating issue in 2022, but I think the competence and national honor question that that those will linger in the back of people's minds as they will color their judgment on other issues as well that's my take on it last question leslie it goes to what you've been talking about over on capitol hill we sit not too far from the rotunda here in our studios at the dc bureau and it has just been weeks of dysfunction among democrats on the hill and they keep saying well we're getting closer and they might get closer to a deal And then, you know, Joe Manchin comes out and says what he said yesterday. Members of the squad are taking really hard shots at him. There seems to be a bit of a a trust deficit there. What do you think it's going to take to get people back onto the same page? And do you think they will do so in such a way that people are satisfied enough in sort of the more moderate camp and the progressive camp to, I mean, at least pass the infrastructure bill? I, I, I really struggle to believe they're going to blow that.
0: No, I I agree with you. This is why I think they should have already done that. You know, they shouldn't have tied the two together and allowed the Progressive Caucus, which is a minority in my party, to hold them hostage. Um, You know what? I don't know. I'm being honest, and this is why everything they've not everything, almost everything they've asked for, they've gotten. Senator Sanders said, OK, lowering prescription, you know, drug prices. He's having conversations with Manchin. It, it doesn't seem like Manchin is going to budge totally. But, you know, he may throw uh, them a bone. OK. And, and that would help. Like I said, those 15 vulnerable Democrats that are, um, you know, up their house seats are up, obviously, uh, as they are every two years, <coughs> excuse me, in uh, in uh, the next election, the midterms. But you know, you have the progressives that said, you know, Speaker Pelosi. I've got to give her credit for seriously not like, you know, just slapping these people at this point. Because she said, you know, they said, I want to see the text. Well, she needs they their votes. The well, of course she does. But but at the same time, when I mean, when you're when you're acting like. You know, petulant children, like I said, is this, about, is this about I want what I want and I want to get what I want? Or is this really about helping your constituency and your party move forward in meeting those goals that your constituents and your party have set with your election, your president's election, and other elections uh, around you within uh, your chamber? In addition to that, you know, Joe Manchin keeps saying, well, you know, we, you know, we have time. No, we don't have time. I mean, you know, this should have been done before the president went overseas. This certainly should have been done before today. And speaking of that, I can't stand when anybody puts this, we're going to do it Thursday. Never do that. It's like showing your hand at a poker game. You just don't do that. And that's that's just my opinion. I don't care what party you're in. You don't do that because things happen. You always have that person that you counted on the vote of that gets their mind changed. Whether it's uh, you know in the middle of the night somebody came to them in a dream or a lobbyist, um, you know that could change their mind. So it doesn't it doesn't look good for my party or any party when you say we're going to do it Tuesday. Ah, it's going to be Thursday, and you keep stalling because it does look like you don't have a handle on things. I don't. Yeah, think the
2: these deadlines.
0: Are, you, yeah, constant deadlines that get broken. It's 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 just ridiculous. We all do it in our own lives, too, right? Like, you know, I'm going to lose this weight by this date. Stop. <laughs> Stop.
2: Take yeah. that when the deadlines come and go, then it starts to look like more and more dysfunction and that, you know, people are jumping off some bandwagon. That generates more headlines about – it can sort of become self-fulfilling. And we've seen a lot of that now for weeks and weeks on this. Uh, but I still – believe they're going to do something it's a matter of time i think but i keep saying the possibility for a complete collapse is non-zero because of the dynamics some of them that you were just describing leslie marshall democratic analyst fox news contributor here on the guy benson show leslie appreciate it thank you thank you Guy. we will step aside come back on the happy hour stay with us
1: Fresh conservative talk guy benson show Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America is listening to Fox News.
2: Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. So I mentioned a few times that I live in northern Virginia, and around my neighborhood and surrounding neighborhoods, there have been an eyebrow raising number of Glenn Youngkin signs. I saw almost none for Donald Trump in the election. There were definitely Trump voters around. They just weren't going to advertise it right in their front yard. And that has changed a bit where I guess folks feel like there's some kind of a permission structure where they can plant that Youngkin sign in their lawns or in their windows of condos and that sort of thing. And I've seen them And it has been noticeable. That's anecdotal. That's not data. And at this stage, when we're so close to the polls closing, you're just sort of casting about for little signs here or there. What I will say, speaking of signs, is that on the median, so not in people's yards, but sort of in public areas, public grass, the Glenn Youngkin for governor signs have been disappearing overnight. Right. There'll be eight or ten in a given stretch of road, and then the next day you go driving and they're all gone. Sometimes you can still see the wire frames left. Someone's taking them. I saw that the Arlington County Republican Party was able to get some photos of someone who was going and stealing the signs. Looked like a young ish white guy on a little moped. So they published his photo. To me, it's just like the most pathetic thing. You have nothing more important or better to do in your life than going around and stealing lawn signs of someone that you don't like or you don't agree with. I just – I don't get that. I don't understand what they believe that achieves, but it's happening. Now, this story, relatedly, in Virginia, I think is simultaneously hilarious and pathetic. In the 12th district of Virginia – In the House of Delegates, the police department in Radford has reportedly issued a citation yesterday to a guy called Chris Hurst, who is a delegate, a Democrat in Virginia, an elected Democrat. And if you go to his social media bio, he's got his pronouns in there. He's got BLM. So, you know, he's a progressive. He was cited. By the police department for driving on a suspended license after a sheriff's deputy observed a passenger getting out of a vehicle and destroying signs for Jason Ballard, who is the Republican opponent in the race. And the driver of this car was Delegate Hearst himself. See, my thought was. In politics, you would at least Outsource the truly pitiful, grubby, low task of stealing or destroying opponents' lawn signs to some intern or some like, you know, piddling nobody in your world or in your circle. You don't do it yourself, but I guess in the case of this Virginia Democrat, an elected Democrat, he was the driver of the car as they went around and destroyed on election eve— the signs of his opponent and even better he was driving on a suspended license there was a a DUI situation with this guy not long ago and so he's been cited for that as well on election eve that is quite a look really good stuff that certainly screams sanity and competence and confidence does it not Uh, the lawn sign wars at the 11th hour. We'll have actual results to talk about soon, thank goodness, on The Guy Benson Show, back after this.
1: Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. As
2: we continue here, it's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. And earlier in today's program, we welcome back to the program, Josh Holmes, founding partner of Cavalry LLC, co-host of the Ruthless podcast, also a longtime Republican aide, and operative, a McConnell guy, getting his take on Virginia and more. Here's part of my conversation with Josh Holmes. So I was just quoting another uh, playbook, D.C., report from Politico about how last night, Terry McAuliffe on the campaign trail with uh, Randy Weingarten there by his side, was inventing a made-up Yunkin-Trump rally, just asserting that it was happening, and that was how Glenn Yunkin was closing his campaign. Politico was like, nope, that is definitely not a thing. And you look at the enthusiasm and certainly the intensity gap that exists in this race, I think that is undeniable. What is debatable is whether ultimately it will matter to the final outcome. The polls show an extremely tight race, So take this ball wherever you want to take it, Josh, in terms of what you're seeing on the ground, what you're hearing. You're a very plugged in guy. What are your expectations here tonight? And what do you make of uh, really a surging Yunkin toward the end and kind of a bit of a spiraling lackluster McAuliffe?
8: Yeah, I mean, look, the first thing we all have to remember is that Virginia definitely is a blue state. I mean, if you listen to Democrats, they're trying to pretend as though it's like the ultimate swing state, but but recall that Joe Biden won by double digits one year right. ago, almost to the date, right? So it, it, it's pretty blue at this point, and it certainly has been blue for over the last decade. The fact that we are talking about this, you know, just one year removed from a Democratic sweep in Virginia, I think says a lot about the direction of the country and, you know, its proximity to what's happening in Washington, D.C., and, and ultimately the trouble that that is, has brought upon the McCullough campaign. Compounding all of that is this national issue that really sort of started in Virginia, which is the issue of critical race theory and, and more broadly, the issue of classrooms and what's being taught to children and whether or not parents should have any say in the education of their children, which seems like. Well, and, and, an either, and also, thing. I would
2: add, also just closed classrooms for well over a year in Virginia, right? That was also very much in this mix
8: totally in the mix. And, and honestly, that is what gave rise to parents, you know, sometimes for the first time getting a firsthand look at the curriculum that their children are being taught in some of these schools. And so obviously there has been uh, now for many months an outcry to school boards and and school districts across the Commonwealth of Virginia to to take issue with some of that. Now, there's two ways of handling that, right? There's, there's a sincere way of handling it, which Glenn Youngkin has done, talks, talks a lot about it from the very beginning, knew that this was a motivating issue. And then there's the Terry McAuliffe way, which is hilarious in retrospect, and, and I think probably one of the fatal flaws of his campaign if he ends up losing, which is to dismiss it altogether.
2: For my full interview with Josh Holmes, log on GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. We recommend it highly. It's on demand. Again, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or any of your methods for getting your podcast. We are likely there. When we come back, the home stretch, a little field trip at the Guy Benson Show to Loudoun County last night. I mentioned it earlier in the show. Quiet Wyatt came with me. We had a little crew. We'll talk about it. Why it was out very late, past his bedtime. He's very groggy and tired today. We'll get to all of that when we return.
1: Stay tuned. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
2: Home stretch as we are just about an hour away from the polls closing in Virginia, the most watched race in the country tonight, obviously. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are glad to have you here. Last night, we mentioned this on the program yesterday. I decided to go to the very last Yunkin rally of the campaign. It was in Loudoun County, ground zero for a lot of the education wars, for all sorts of different reasons in the Commonwealth of Virginia. It's a Biden plus 25 county. He won it by 25 points a year ago. And the Yunkin people are hopeful, seemingly confident, that it will be much more competitive today. And we'll know soon enough. But I've been covering the race sort of from afar, following it closely. We've had Yunkin on the show multiple times. I just decided to go see the energy for myself. And it was energetic and very well attended for a governor rally. That started, by the way, when Yunkin actually showed up after 10 p.m. I would say there were probably 1,500, maybe 2,000 people there. Took forever to get in through these winding roads. Cars stretched in both directions to the entrance of the venue for you know up to a mile. A little chilly, but the crowd was uh, packed in there and pretty rowdy. And I thought it was very interesting to hear Yunkin's stump speech, which seemed almost designed to speak to different types of voters where you'd have Trump voters who were hearing certain things and loving what they're hearing. Like, okay, this is, this is our guy. He's on our side. Then more moderate or maybe even slightly left-leaning voters saying, okay, this is a different kind of Republican. I'm not turned off by this. And then there were a few references, a few turns of phrases that to me sounded directly targeted at non- Trumpy Republicans or center-right people. And he hit on state and local issues almost exclusively. And we played some of the audio of his education remarks at the top of the show. You can go back and listen to that segment on the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. I mean, it was a very confident bunch. I will say that. Talking to some of the campaign officials, including some top officials, they were not Giddy, they were not counting chickens, but they were very optimistic. I would say, and the candidate himself was predicting not just a victory for his campaign, but a Republican sweep at the top of the ticket in other statewide races and also some down ballot races as well. He said as much. Right, this wasn't off the record. He said it on the microphone. Some of that's pumping up the crowd because you know the the whole path to victory for Yunkin today is a big turnout among Republican and conservative voters and independents who are breaking his way. That's what he needs, and you want to give people a big shot in the arm of morale and let's go do this and a seriousness of purpose and all of that on election eve, and that's what he did. So it was a bit of a drive. I live not terribly close to Loudoun County, so 45 minutes to an hour each way, out past Dulles Airport, if you've ever been there. And I went with my cousin, who's interested in politics. We also brought along Quiet Wyatt, who had expressed some interest in joining and just sort of uh, seeing it for himself as well. One of my colleagues at townhall.com, Spencer Brown, he ended up carpooling back to Northern Virginia with us after the rally. So we had a good little crew. And producer Christine... Was shocked to learn that Wyatt was coming with, and she is concerned that I am a bad influence because I kept him out so late, because the rally started late and then we had to drive back the better part of an hour. So it was a post midnight evening for Wyatt, which is very rare for Quiet Wyatt. He's usually in bed with his warm milk by six PM sharp. All right, Brett Bayer comes on and it's you know, that's like late night TV for him. But past midnight it was a lot, and I will admit that I did feed him bourbon. Blondies. Not actual bourbon, but my friend Carolyn makes these amazing blondies, like brownies, but bourbon-infused. Oh, they are dangerous. They're so good. In fact, I've been trying to give them away, or else I know I will eat them. I don't have a baked good sweet tooth, but these are especially delicious. So anyone who comes close to my house, I'm like, would you like one of these blondies? Please eat them. All right, Curious Christine, you are very intrigued about this Guy Benson Show Field Trip, D.C. Edition. And we did see a car in front of us at one point driving a little uh, erratically, a little swerving. We said, are those jersey plates? And producer Christine uh, slosh her way down <laughs> 95. And no, it was not. It was, in fact, a Virginia plate. Uh, so you have some questions about last night. And so we figured we would let you go ahead and ask them.
7: Now, we all – I can't believe you guys all hung out last night. This is very funny. So let me, let me, let me paint a picture here. So Guy Benson is driving. That's right. Uh, uh, and then you have your cousin, right?
2: Yep. And mm-hmm. then he's in the front seat. We had quiet Wyatt in <laughs> the back. And I was thinking about bringing a little Ziploc bag of, you know, candies or or something just for his good behavior. I'd give him, <laughs> you know, every few minutes, I'd give him a little bourbon blondie to the back seat.
7: I feel like if I was in that back seat, like, you would have Wyatt do, like, roadie checks on me. Like, <laughs> check her cup. <laughs> Is there wine in no, there? he was...
2: He was very quiet, as you might uh, imagine, right? Was, this was not a constant, are we there yet? That's not what we had.
7: Well, not even that. Um, like, were you guys rocking out to jams? Like, what What does a car ride entail with you two? I can't even imagine. Like, are you just, like, strictly talking politics and poll numbers and what Ro- Wyatt read in the Wall Street Journal that morning? Well,
2: so my cousin is a huge political nerd as well. So there was a lot of political nerdery that was happening But once we got close to the venue and we were just waiting in this long line of cars, then things sort of shifted. We put on some music, put on a little – that Coldplay uh, BTS song that we talked about last week on the show. We listened to that a few times. Then as we got closer to the fairgrounds, you could see the bright lights. Then you could start to hear the music that they were playing. There were some local officials who were speaking, so we rolled down the windows, listened to some of that. We finally parked by – what was it? The cow barn, and which was sort of perfect. And we walked in and I was getting settled and I looked over and who did I see? Hark! It was Charlie Hurt. So I went over and chatted with Charlie. Some campaign officials recognized us and came over and, and said hi and were giving us some stuff off the record. And then I went back and just sort of hung out. I was not doing a lot of whooping or clapping or cheering. I was really there to observe. I filmed and posted some of the images on my twitter feed i understand fox news channel put some of it on the air earlier today it got a huge amount of engagement on social i mean hundreds of thousands of people viewed these videos so you know i'm i'm unabashedly supporting glenn young and i have not been at all mysterious about that but i also wasn't there to like cheer him on in particular i wanted to see it and get uh just you know a feel for things um, well, first of all, by the way, Charlie Heard. now that's a that's a good time.
7: He's fun. Uh, he is. Let me, can you, what uh, attire was white? how much Fox News attire, let's put it that way, was quiet
8: Wyatt wearing?
2: White? I don't think you were wearing any.
8: No, Christine, I was, I was, you know, in campaign mode. I was trying to disguise <laughs> myself with the people and I wanted to get, you got to get a sense of what was going on. And so I was just wearing a vest. I was oh, wearing a vest.
7: That was my next question. Was there a vest?
8: <laughs> By the way, I just have to say,
2: just to interrupt, I just saw something out of the corner of my eye in the studio. And I looked and there's this little tiny narrow window of glass in the door to the studio. And with a big Cheshire cat grin and a thumb up was none other than Charlie Hurt. He must have had his ears burning. He knew we were talking about him. In any case, yes, Wyatt was absolutely decked out in the vest, as was Glenn Youngkin, of course, because he finally arrived on the campaign bus and they started playing, what was it, Thunderstruck, I think, and people started waving their signs and cheering and the bus is arriving and the bus driver is having the time of his life. This bus driver is honking. It's all on the video that I posted at Guy P. Benson last night. And the music's blaring, and people are cheering. And then out comes Glenn Youngkin in the red vest. Big cheer. He does a little lap around the stage, giving high fives to folks. And then up on stage, he went to even louder cheers. He comes out to Spirit in the Sky, the old Paul Harvey theme song. And that is when he launched into the stump speech. I made one prediction about the stump speech because he says it every time. I said, I I think – I feel confident that Glenn Youngkin is going to say this is not a campaign. It's a movement. And in fact, he did. And I looked over at Wyatt, and Wyatt had a little impish grin because we all knew it was coming. Go on, Christine. I can't with
7: this. Um, did, Are how you many jealous? Pe- how, yes, very jealous. How many people uh, did <laughs> Wyatt have to fight off when they realized Guy Benson was at the rally?
8: The, I didn't have to do that, but I'm sure if you were here— you would have fought off anyone.
7: Listen, let's be honest. If I was there, you would have been speaking to Glenn Youngkin face-to-face, Guy Benson. You know that.
8: Oh, yeah. You would, have, you
2: would have somehow ended up on the bus. Oh, 100%. Yeah. It's like all of a sudden, like, you know, Cookie is on the bus. I did like at the end of the rally, they have had people as they've driven around on this bus tour, the final, what, week or two of the campaign. They have Sharpies. Silver Sharpies, and they're letting people sign the bus wherever he goes. So people were signing the bus. They were playing Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow, famously Bill Clinton's theme song in the 1992 campaign. And I like reclaiming that song away from the Clintons because it's a great Fleetwood Mac song. It is also a great song for a campaign in general. Of course, he doesn't want anyone stopping thinking about tomorrow because in that case tomorrow was Election Day. And as I mentioned, he's counting on a big, big GOP independent pro-Yunkin turnout today to overcome the lead that Democrats have built. And the early returns from northern Virginia in particular and elsewhere are going to look pro-McAuliffe. And the question is going to be how pro-McAuliffe, right? What are those margins? And then what does the turnout look like today? Can it swamp and overcome what the Dems have built and – Based on what the campaign was signaling to me and telling me explicitly, they feel confident that that is what is going to happen, and I hope that they're right. I'll believe it when I see it, and as I said today in my analysis at townhall.com, my prediction is Yunkin wins by a point to three points. I think I put a 50% likelihood on that. I put a 20% likelihood that he wins bigger than that, so three plus, and a 30% likelihood that Terry McAuliffe wins, because this is still... A blue place that Joe Biden won by 10 points. That is a lot of ground to make up, even with a very impressive effort and candidate gaining eight or nine points, I think would say something about the national environment for sure. But it wouldn't quite be enough to pull out the victory tonight. And we'll know very soon. Last question, Christine.
7: Just describe the ride home now. Was poor White so tired that he fell asleep? Or was he just so amped that he was up late? Were you guys just like rocking out, you know, saying, yeah, look at these polls, We got this. High-fiving each other.
2: No, it was was neither of those things. It was a calm, professional ride home. He and my colleague from Town Hall split an Uber into the district. I dropped my cousin off at his house in Virginia. And uh, they actually came over to the house briefly, saw Roy, the dog. And then shipped out for the evening. And then he went home and went to bed. And you were, what, asleep by maybe 1230?
8: Guy, let's be honest. That wasn't the evening. That was early morning, okay?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It was fun. I'm glad that we did it. It was a good experience. We've talked so much about the race. It's right in my backyard, right, this rally. Yes, it's a 45 or 50-minute drive. But to me, it was worth it. Did you feel like it was worth it, Wyatt?
8: Totally, 100%. All
2: right, there you go. Well, tomorrow, the analysis here on the show will be what happened, how it happened, and what it means. Am I nervous? Is my stomach in knots? Oh, yes. We're an hour away from polls closing, and then it's like into the hands of God. We'll see what happens back here tomorrow for all of it on The Guy Benson Show from New York City. We'll talk to you then.
4: Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the
9: biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think.
2: Listen live or get the podcast now at Briankilmeadshow.com This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.